As you're turning to 2 Kings chapter 8, welcome to those who are tuning in online as well. Glad to have you. The Shunammite woman from chapter 4 has reappeared. We're not through learning about her or how God was merciful to her. She trusted in what Elisha said about the famine. We already knew she was a faithful woman. She trusted what Elisha said about the famine so much that she went to live in the land of the Philistines, which was land that originally belonged to the children of Israel. A lot of the land that Israel has to retake and retake and retake is land God originally gave them and that they forfeited through sin, just like Adam and Eve forfeited their place in the Garden of Eden because of sin. And I want you to look at the parallel here between what is happening in the verses we're studying here in verse, chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 and the succeeding verses. Look at the parallel between that and the land that Israel forfeited because of their sin. She went to a land that once belonged to and was possessed by, inhabited by the children of Israel as we studied back in chapter 4. And the scriptures that supported that she was of the tribe of Issachar, I believe, are very strong, and we also studied that. So she was an Israelite without much doubt at all, and she had a legal right to that land, being an Israelite. Now, in our text, a famine has caused this Shunammite woman this daughter of Israel, to be dispossessed of a house that legally belonged to her. She moved out for seven years. And remember what the Bible said about her when we first met her in chapter 4. It said, among many things, she was a great woman. And yet, by faith in what Elisha told her about this famine, she left her home not knowing where she would end up. He said, go sojourn, whither, so, sojourn whithersoever. She, in other words, go find some place to live, just not here where the famine's going to be. He didn't say, go ye to this place or go ye to that place. So she didn't know where she was going to end up. But she knew God was faithful. And that's what mattered. It reminds me of Abram from Genesis chapter 12, before his name was changed to Abraham. Same fellow. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, where the Bible said, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. So just like the Shunammite woman, Abram didn't know where he was going. He just trusted God would get him wherever it was, God wanted him to go, and God knew where he would send Abram, just like he knows all things. So just as Abram knew not where he was going, neither did this Shunammite woman know where she was going. And yet, just as God made a great nation out of Abraham, who many would call homeless at that time, and blessed him above measure, 
This woman trusted that God would do the same for her by trusting the words that Elisha spoke unto her. She knew him to be a man of God, and she knew that the words he spoke were true words and that they were from the Lord. And so as we read last week, and we'll continue to read, she would cry out to her king for a home that was rightfully hers. Trusting that God would move upon the heart of this king to restore that home to her. And one day, God will reclaim for Israel and more that which legally belongs to her. And that's the Israel of God. In Isaiah chapter 52, verses 4 through 9, Isaiah 52, verses 4 through 9, listen to this promise. For thus saith the Lord God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there. Now that wasn't their home, was it? And the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught? That they that rule over them make them to howl, saith the Lord, and my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't he? That publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice with the voice together, shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people, he hath redeemed Jerusalem. These people were being ruled and still are being ruled by the rulers of darkness, and one day he will redeem his people, and they will say, My God reigneth. And whether it be a king restoring a house to the Shunammite woman, or God restoring the land to Israel, or redeeming all things unto himself, our faith should be strengthened when we remember that God is sovereign over all his creation. Nothing gets out of hand with him. And one day he will completely and finally redeem his creation. And that's the day for which we wait. And that's the day where there will be no more famine of any kind, whether it be earthly or spiritual. This Shunammite woman had to wait out the famine, trusting it would be, as Elisha said, seven years. Now, we don't know how long it will be before the Lord returns, before this spiritual famine is over, but he does, and we know he will. Now, let's look at verse 4. We are in 2 Kings chapter 8 and verse 4, if you just joined us. And the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha hath done. 
We haven't seen the name Gehazi since chapter 5, verse 27. Perhaps you remember that was where the leprosy of Naaman cleaved unto him after he took that which did not belong to him. And although Gehazi may have been this unnamed servant of the man of God since then, his name reappears here for the first time since chapter 5. Now you may be asking yourself, if Gehazi is a leper, if he's got leprosy, how could he be allowed to come into the city, into the palace, and be in the presence of the king? Boy, that'd be a good question to ask me, wouldn't it? Because that was the question I had. I said, he's a leper, and he's talking to the king. Why? Now, you know what a, a lot of people might be tempted to do is go, well, I'm just going to read on, some, go to something else. I can't do it. It just kills me if I don't know the answer. And so let's take a look at this for a moment. How could this be in keeping with God's law? Leviticus chapter 13 verses 9 through 17 gives us a clue, a very good one. Leviticus 13 verses 9 through 17. Listen to what it says. Now we're backing up in time to the giving of the law about leprosy. When the plague of leprosy is in a man... Then he shall be brought unto the priest, and the priest shall see him. And behold, if the rising be white in the skin, and it have turned the hair white, and there be quick, raw flesh in the rising, it is an old leprosy in the skin of his flesh. And the priest shall pronounce him unclean, and shall not shut him up, for he is unclean. And if a leprosy break out abroad in the skin, the leprosy... Cover all the skin of him that hath the plague from his head even to his foot, wheresoever the priest looketh. Then the priest shall consider, and behold, if the leprosy have covered all his flesh, he shall pronounce him clean that hath the plague. Did you hear that? He shall pronounce him clean that hath the plague. It is all turned white. He is clean. But when the raw flesh appeareth in him, he shall be unclean. So there was the difference right there in the priest pronouncing the person with the leprosy, clean and unclean, has the flesh turned white or is it still raw? Or if the flesh, if, if the raw flesh turn again and be changed unto white, he shall come unto the priest and the priest shall see him. And behold, if the plague be turned into white, then the priest shall pronounce him clean that hath the plague. He is clean. Now that tells us in both cases here the person has leprosy. With the raw flesh, he's probably still contagious. He's unclean. But with the white flesh, he's not, even though he has the plague of leprosy. And leprosy, as we know very well, was a deadly disease. It still is, just like cancer. But just like cancer, people's bodies respond differently. Some die from it. Skin cancer kills some people. Other people, like my dad, go out to California to the Roy Rogers Hospital and have it cut off his head and keep on going. It affects people differently. It depends on whether it's spread or not. And I take it that leprosy would be the same way. Some respond well to surgery and radiation and chemotherapy and immunotherapy and other medical interventions, and some do not. Now, 
as you read what the commentators say about why this leper Gehazi would be able to go inside the city, inside the palace, and be in the presence of the king, some of the opinions are are uh, rather comical. I think it's kind of sad sometimes. But one said, well, God must have healed him from the leprosy. Well, the only problem with that is that in 2 Kings 5.27, where we read about this, Elisha said to Gehazi, the leprosy therefore of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and to thy seed forever. So that tells me that he wasn't healed completely of the leprosy before he went into the king's presence. And it said, and he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. So he had leprosy, but what was the condition that allowed the priest to pronounce him clean if the flesh had turned white, not when it was raw? It's kind of complicated, doesn't it? But if you look at what the scriptures say, and that's all I'm going to depend on here is what the scripture says about it. It tells me how he could go into the presence of the king and still be a leper. His flesh was white as snow. I mean, forever is forever, right? And white as snow is the key phrase that helps us understand this. He wasn't contagious. Now, what did the king demand of Gehazi? Back in your verse 4, tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha hath done. God moved upon the king's heart to ask such a question as this. And remember, this king had previously been a doubter, in fact, even a hater of Elisha and what he spoke. He blamed Elisha for the great famine that overtook Samaria. And now God has delivered Samaria from the famine in a way that we would have never predicted. And the king's right-hand man had been trampled to death. Yes, he saw all the goodness and mercy of the Lord with the fine flour and the barley, but he didn't eat of it. It's because he was trampled to death by the citizens of his own city. Perhaps this king, of whom we read, had a change of mind. Whether temporary or not, we can't be sure. We can't read someone's heart. We can listen to what they say. We can see what they do. But God knows the heart, and he knew the heart of this king. And to tell the king the great things Elisha has done is to tell the king the great things God has done. So I want you to remember that if somebody says, Oh, your people at Central Baptist Church have done wonderful things for the spreading of the gospel and telling people how to be saved and clearing up their confusion and discipling the new Christians who come online or who come in here, then what they're bragging on is not you and me, it's on what God has done. When they say what great things Central Baptist Church has done, what they're telling is that God has done great things through Central Baptist, and we should always understand it that way. If you don't, that's how pride creeps in, and we fall into a snare. And that, by the way, is why we don't put a novice in the pulpit or in the pastorate lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the snare of the devil. One way that happens is by somebody saying, 
Boy, look at the great things old brother so-and-so's done. He's just been a preacher for three months. And he hears that and says, yes, look at the great things I've done. Well, to tell the king what Elisha had done would be to testify of God. And let's see verse 5. And it came to pass as he was telling the king how he had restored a dead body to life. Behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. It says, And it came to pass as he was telling the king how he, that is Elisha, had restored a dead body to life. That was the Shunammite woman's child who had died and was laid on a bed and whose mother left him on the bed, left him with God and shut the door. And Elisha went and stretched himself upon the child and the child revived. I mentioned earlier that God had moved upon this king's heart to ask Gehazi to tell him all the great things Elisha had done. Now this was a king who was more prone to be angry with Elisha than he was to be in admiration of Elisha. And it just so happened, some would say coincidentally, but it's not, it just so happened at the very time Gehazi was testifying about what Elisha had done to the Shunammite woman's son, that the Shunammite woman presented herself to cry out for her house, for the king to restore it. Those two things came together in time. It's not a coincidence. That's divine appointment. That's what that is, divine appointment. And based upon Gehazi's response, as we'll look at, he did not know that this woman was about to come before the king while he spoke. He didn't know she was going to walk in. They didn't set this up together where he would say, now listen, the king's probably going to ask me to tell all the great things Elisha has done. I wouldn't suppose that king would ever ask that, but he did. And Gehazi didn't tell this woman. Now, when he does, I'm going to tell him about not all the other things Elisha did, but this one here that involved you. And you walk in about the time you hear me saying that you walk in and cry out for your house and it'll be a done deal. We'll move on him using the emotions of his heart to get your house back for you. That's not what happened. So not only did God move upon the king's heart to ask about the great things Elisha had done, but he also moved upon Gehazi's heart to tell about this specific miracle. And as I said, Gehazi could have chosen to tell about a number of great things Elisha had done that did it not involve this Shunammite woman. But he told about the Shunammite woman's son. So neither the king's question nor Gehazi's answer were coincidental. That was God's sovereign hand moving upon this event, moving upon the hearts of the people to bring something to pass that's going to be even greater than restoring her house. Now let's look at verse 6. And when, in fact, I mentioned a moment ago, it was clear to me that Gehazi did not know this woman was going to come in as he told the story about Elisha raising her son from the dead. Look at the end of verse 5 where 
when she comes into the house, Gehazi said, My Lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son. The son came with her. Do you see that? The son came with her, whom Elisha restored to life. So that looks like he was surprised. Hey, this is who I'm talking about right here. Verse 6, And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the fruits of the field since the day that she left the land, even until now. So after confirming with this woman that what Gehazi said was really true, yes, he did raise my son up from the dead. The king made arrangements to restore two things to this woman. The property that was hers and the fruit that it bore. The property that was hers and the fruit that it bore. The property that was hers included a house and fields at the very least, perhaps more, but that's what's said here in the Bible. And as we studied earlier, this woman had a legal right to her property, to her house and to her lands. Nowhere did we read that she sold it and then went off to live in the Philistine land. She just left. It was still her property. If I go on vacation, which I plan to do in October, and I come back, there better not be anybody else living in my house. It's still mine. And if I choose to go for seven years, which I won't do, then that's still my house. And it tells us what's really interesting here is that that second thing that was restored to her, not just her fields and her house, but all the fruits of the field. And it tells us that somebody was working these fields while she was gone and harvesting their fruits, although it was in a time of famine. So I'm not sure how much was harvested, but there was something because God said in his word that the fruits of the field were to be restored to her. And because she was gone for seven years, it's likely that many of those fruits had to be eaten, used to make flour, or whatever other manner of consumption was appropriate to those fruits. And the word fruits in the Old Testament is actually translated more often as the word increase. So when we think of fruit, I think of what I chopped up and put in my Greek nonfat yogurt from Costco this morning. That was good, good stuff. Don't need any sugar or sweet and low on it, by the way. God put enough in, in the fruit. That's what I think of when I think of fruits. But here in the Bible, when you look at that Hebrew word, it, it means an increase. It's also translated one time in the King James translation as the word revenue. That's folding money, isn't it, sister? Revenue. So it's likely that many of the literal fruits were at some point sold for money, and that money belonged to that woman as well. Those were her fruits. I want you to notice here also the time period that's addressed by the king. How much of these fruits should be restored to her? He said, restore all that was hers and all the fruits of the field since when? 
since the day that she left the land, even until now. Every bit of it. She doesn't just have a right to claim what's currently growing on the tree or on the vine or shooting up from the ground. She has a right to all the fruits from the time she left until the time she came back. That seven years worth of profits, however meager they may have been, seven years worth of profits that are owed to her for her to do with what she will. And if you say, well, shouldn't those people who took care of the land be paid? I'm sure she has an arrangement for that. But that's her business, isn't it? It's not our business to pay them out of what belongs to her. It's her business to pay them out of what belongs to her. Now, we're looking at restoration. And I want to read to you from the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verses 23 through 26. Joel 2, verses 23 through 26. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And the floor shall be full of wheat, and the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. Listen to this, and I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you, and ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. You know, the rain is not only the actual water that God generously sends from the sky that we're so in need of right now. And I'll just depart right here for a moment. A, there were a bunch of grass fires up in one of the counties in the Metroplex, and one of the, the landowners, farmer, said, the good Lord will send rain whenever he's ready. I like that attitude. That man had the right attitude. He didn't get mad at God and say, why'd you let this happen? This earth has been cursed because of sin ever since the garden. It's born thorns and thistles. We've had earthquakes and droughts and floods and all of that. And who are we to expect that we don't have to have a drought every once in a while? It's no fun. It's inconvenient. It's expensive. It's damaging. But let it remind you of what sin caused. Don't get mad at God over it. Now, God said he's going to restore it. Listen to a promise from Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11. 55, verses 10 through 11. We're going to connect this rain with something. It has to do with restoration. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word, see it said, as the rain cometh down, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. And the word of the Lord that restores to us the years that the locust hath eaten, 
is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's fulfillment when Jesus comes again and restores all things unto himself. And when he restores all things unto himself, that includes all that sin took away. So the restoration to the Shunammite woman of all the fruits of the field since the day she left the land even till now, that's a picture of what Jesus will restore to the Israel of God, the believers, when he makes all things new. The apostles asked Jesus about that day in Acts chapter 1. Listen to verses 4 through 8. Acts 1 verses 4 through 8. And being assembled together with them, that is with the apostles, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water. But ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom of, again, restore again the kingdom of Israel? Let me read that sentence again. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And as you can see, the apostles expected that Jesus would do what was prophesied in the Old Testament. But they didn't fully understand what was meant by it. And Jesus redirected their question by telling them, it's not time for you to know the answer to that question, but it is time for you to receive power to be witnesses to all the earth. Now back in our text, let's look at verse 7 and continue. And Elisha came to Damascus. Now that'd be the capital of Syria. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, The man of God is come thither. Elisha came to Damascus. And he did this right after the Syrians had run away from Samaria with nothing but the clothes on their back. But his coming to Damascus was not for the purpose of ridiculing them and saying, Ha, did you know all of your soldiers ran away just as scared as they could be? That wasn't why he came. It said here, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. Now, we don't know the nature of the illness, but he was weakened by some disease. And you'll see in a few verses again that he was very weak. And it says it was told him saying the man of God has come thither. Now Ben-Hadad knew who the man of God was. <laughs> He'd been a friend to him when God used him to heal Naaman. 
The man of God had been a nemesis to him when he was used to drive the Syrian army away from Samaria where they had surrounded the city during the famine. In verse 8, And the king said unto Hazael, Take a present in thine hand, and go meet the man of God, and inquire of him by the Lord, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? Now we were introduced to Hazael when Elijah was still alive, back in 1 Kings 19. Listen to what God told Elijah back in 1 Kings 19, and this is verses 15 through 17. So we're backing up in time. And the Lord said unto him, Go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, Shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room, meaning in thy place, in your place. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu say, slay. And him that escapeth from the, the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. So not only was God back in Elijah's day naming Ben-Hadad's successor while Ben-Hadad was still alive and still on the throne... But he was also naming Elijah's successor while Elijah was still alive. And in our text, Ben-Hadad, the king, is under the impression that he needed to give a present to Elisha in order for Elisha to tell him whether he would recover from this disease or not, whether he'd live or die. In Acts chapter 8, the apostles were exercising those gifts that God gave them, specifically laying hands on the believers in that, at that time. And a man named Simon, not Simon Peter, but Simon, saw this, and he thought it was the coolest thing he'd ever seen. That's how he looked at it. And listen to verses 18 through 21. This is Acts chapter 8, verses 18 through 21. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands he might receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Now Peter could have taken his money, but he said, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor a lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. In our text, Ben-Hadad wanted to purchase the gift of knowledge from Elisha. That is, the foreknowledge about whether he would recover from this disease or not. And we may conclude that even though he sought the man of God to inquire of the Lord, to ask of the Lord for him, his heart still was not right with the Lord. Just because somebody's prays or says, hey, pray for me that a bunch of money will come to my mailbox sometime in the next 30 days. For what? Or pray for me that, that uh, my boss won't fire me even though I've been showing up to work late all week long. I just can't afford to lose my job. No, you're 
We're not going to do that. I'm going to pray for you that you'll start showing up on time for work. And if your boss fires you, then you'll make better habits. And so your heart wouldn't be right with God if you were to ask for something like that. Verse 10, And Elisha said unto him, this is his answer to Hazael, who was sent by Ben-Hadad to ask this question, Shall I recover this disease? And Elisha said unto him, Go say unto him, that is, go tell your king, Thou mayest certainly recover, howbeit the Lord has showed me that he shall surely die. Let's back up and look at verse 9. I don't think I read the whole verse. So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, even of every good thing of Damascus, 40 camels burden. That's a lot of gifts, isn't it? And came and stood before him and said, Thy son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to thee, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? And then we just read Elisha's answer. So interestingly, Elisha tells him two things that you may say are contrary one to another. He said, first, go say unto him, thou mayest certainly recover. Those three words, mayest certainly recover, come from only one Hebrew word, and it means live or revive. In fact, most of the translations that I consulted translate it this way. Thou mayest certainly recover. It's translated as, you shall certainly recover. In other words, live. You're going to live. Now stay with me. What was the question Ben-Hadad asked? He said, shall I recover of this disease? You following me? So essentially, Elisha tells Hazael to tell Ben-Hadad that he would recover from the disease. This is important. So look at the next thing Elijah said to Hazael. He said, how be it the Lord has showed me that he shall surely die. But did Elisha say, how be it the Lord has showed me that he shall surely die of the disease? No, he didn't say that. Keep that in mind. Verse 11 And he settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. Now the pronouns he, his, and he make it a little difficult to know who the Bible is referring to, Elisha or Hazael. Uh, Who was it who settled his countenance steadfastly? Who was it that was ashamed? And we know who the man of God was. That was Elisha. And I believe the word ashamed is the key here. It's also translated in the Old Testament as the word confounded or confused. Now, Elisha wasn't confounded or confused, was he? He said what he said. He knew the meaning of it. But Hazael probably was just like you were when you read it and thought, wait a minute. Tell him he's going to recover, but God told me he's going to die. That may have confounded you. May have made you ashamed. But you don't need to be. So I believe that we could insert Hazael's name into here and understand the verse a little bit better by simply saying, now look at verse 11, and Hazael settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. The man of God, of course, is Elisha. Elisha wept. Now you might think he was sad that Ben-Hadad was going to die, 
And that is apparently very far from the truth. Look at verse 12. And Hosea said, Why weepeth my Lord? And he answered, Because I know the evil that thou wilt do. Hosea, thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire. And their young men wilt thou slay with the sword. And wilt dash their children and rip up their women with child. Hazael asked Elisha, why are you weeping? And Elisha's answer was a prophecy about Hazael and the evil he'll do. I'd call this a shocker, wasn't expecting that answer. After all, wouldn't it be more appropriate, considering the circumstances, to openly mourn about the pending death of Syria's king? In man's eyes, it would. But Hazael would prove to be more evil than Ben-Hadad ever thought about being. Verse 13, And Hazael said, But what, is thy servant, he's talking about himself, a dog? Am I a dog? That he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has showed me that thou shalt be king over Syria. So in answer to Hazael's question, he didn't say, Oh no, Hazael, it's, uh, it's not that you're a dog. It's just that God showed me what you would do in the future. Instead, Elisha continued by saying, you're going to be king over Israel. God showed me that. Do you remember reading from 1 Kings chapter 19? Of course you do. Where God told Elijah to anoint Hazael as king over Syria. So what God showed Elisha is that what he told Elijah would come to pass. And Elisha was just passing that on. It's as good as done. Verse 14. So he departed from Elisha, that is Hazael, and came to his master who said to him, What said Elisha to thee? And he answered, He told me that thou shouldest surely recover. And that is what he told him, but that's not all he told him. He told him the good news, didn't he? That he'd recover, and we know that was from the disease. He did not tell him that the Lord showed him you're going to die. And then we'll finish up with verse 15 here. And it came to pass on the morrow that he, that's Hazael, took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it on his face, that is on the king's face, on Ben-Hadad's face, so that he died. And Hazael reigned in his stead, just like God said. Now, they didn't know the details, but they knew Hazael would be king, yet not in this wicked way. It says on the morrow, that means the next day. So Hazael took a thick towel Dipped it in water. This is very similar to waterboarding. If you put a hand towel over your face that's dry, you could still breathe through the pores. It's not much fun, but it's something little boys would do. Just see if they can do it. However, if you dip it in the water, that water fills up the spaces between those pores, and you can't breathe through it. Don't try this at home or at the Motel 6 either, even with their little cheap towels. Essentially... Hazael suffocated Ben-Hadad with a wet cloth, and it killed him. Now, what conclusion might we draw? Well, first of all, Ben-Hadad recovered from the disease. If God showed Elisha that Ben-Hadad would recover from the disease, he did, either that night or by the next morning, but he recovered from the disease. And secondly, Ben-Hadad died just like God said he would. God said he was going to die. And so this eliminates the confusion about what Elisha told Hazael in verse 10. 
he shall surely recover the disease, but God showed me he's going to die. Those were not contradictory statements. They were both true. We just need to understand how. All right, and with that, we'll close and be dismissed in prayer. Father, thank you for all who came, for the great attention given to your word. And Lord, thank you for teaching us with your spirit the truth that was contained here today. And may we leave here remembering it, uh, meditating on it, Lord, so it doesn't get lost in the recesses of our carnal minds and that we may live by it. Bless us during the next hour. Bless the children as they sing, as they've worked so hard. And Father, just help them to do their very best and for us to be blessed by the message in the song. Bless our pastor and all who, who come to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray you draw the lost unto yourself that they would see the love of Jesus as he gave his life for their sins. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.